Okay, what I would like to do today is to offer a few things that might be helpful working with pain, working with predominantly physical pain. Um, although some of it, as I'll, I'll come back to some of it, will, will apply very well to mental pain. But um, offer a few things that may be helpful, hopefully will be helpful in working with physical pain, pain in meditation, developing the kind of skill and art in meditation uh, in different ways, skills and arts that can uh, certainly reduce the suffering around and in relation to pain, but also actually uh, attenuate, ease pain, attenuate it, reduce the actual sensations of pain. And, or, as well as that, um, can, what should we say, uh, sanctify the pain, the very unpleasant sensations, um, transubstantiate them, divinize them. And I'll explain uh, what's involved there and what, what we mean by that. So certainly, uh, medit- what I want to address is meditative skills, meditative approaches, development of those arts and meditation that can reduce um, reduce the suffering, that goes or comes with pain in relationship to pain can also reduce pain, uh, the actual intensity of the pain, sometimes quite uh, very dramatically, and also the kind of yeah, transubstantiation, uh, divinization, sacramentalization of pain. So, I uh, should say, of course, and I'm I'm personally uh, aware through direct experience and. Painfully aware. Um, the pain, we, we could say there's uh, three types. You know, there's kind of occasional pain, um, just from, for example, sitting a really long time in meditation, repeatedly on retreat, back hurts, the knees hurt, this or that hurt, the hips hurt. And there's occasional pain, or from an, um, you know, whatever it is. Um, there's also chronically recurrent pain. You know, as a kind of second category, it's uh, maybe not all the time in an uninterrupted way, but it keeps kind of it keeps returning. Uh, maybe it never fades completely. Uh, maybe it does fade completely at times, or I mean, fade naturally, just go away. Um, but it keeps it keeps coming back. It's a chronic feature of one's life. It just keeps coming back. One has to uh, deal with that. And then there's just sort of, in a way, simply chronic pain. It's just there all the time. Um, so, in a way, the what I'd like to offer here, uh, ways of working in meditation, applies across the board there to all kinds of pain. However, in the third category, where there's pain that's just chronic, it's just there all the time, it won't be possible all the time to engage some of these practices because uh, one's life will naturally need to be busy uh, doing other stuff, interacting with other people, of course, working, um, and and that's hard. So I have to uh, meet the world, be in the world, do in the world, in relationship and in work and, and whatever else, and there's this pain, and it's pulling on the attention, but it's not possible to give it the whole-hearted um, fullness of intention or the kind of 
um, skill and subtlety and sophistication of the kinds of attention of some of the practices I'm going to talk about all the time because I'm busy doing other, other stuff. Can't give it the same quality of attention as I can when I'm not doing anything else but sitting down or standing or walking to, to meditate. And so, of course, thankfully now, um, most people, uh, certainly in the West, uh, hopefully more and more in, uh, you know, second, so-called second or third world countries, have access to painkilling medication, and uh, you know, not to forget that if there's just chronic pain, because we can't be in deliberate, full-on, uh, kind of artful. Uh, meditation, uh, meditative attention with it all the time. So, but 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 actually, what I'm talking about applies to all three categories. Partly, what I'm going to do is just list, um, briefly list, um, uh, a selection of practices, not an exhaustive list at all. What it is, though, is a kind of a list in in a little bit of a, let's say. A, progressive or ascending order of skill or development or art. In other words, I'll start with um, practices and approaches, meditative approaches that are, that are relatively easy, relatively well known as well, of course, um, and and then include more and more that are actually, well, a lot more powerful, but also a lot more uh, difficult to develop. What I really want to stress, though, is that they're absolutely possible. I'm not talking about anything that's not possible. Um, it it just so if some of this, uh, you know, towards the end of the list sounds, com- or even the middle of the list sounds completely outlandish and otherworldly and impossible for a human being uh, with a physical body to accomplish. That's just not true. It's just not true. It's so much a matter of finding the right ways to practice and applying oneself in the right ways and really developing one's art stage by stage. So some of the things later in the list will depend on the uh, arts developed in uh, in the earlier stages of the list. And they build on those stages as platforms. And then uh, what we're talking about is absolutely possible. Absolutely possible. And uh, available, accessible to us as human beings. No reason why not. I'm not going to go into too much uh, detail around technique because I've done so for actually most of these practices um, elsewhere and uh, either written about them in Seeing the Freeze or um, talked about them in different talks over the years and given quite a lot of sort of detail of technique there. But what I I do want to do is mention them and give some explanations of uh, what we need to understand here. And I also want to include um, soul-making practices in relation to pain, sensing sensing pain with soul, etc. So talking about, predominantly about physical pain, um, but much that I'm saying will apply to uh, mental dukkha as well. So if that's... If you're listening at a time when the mental dukkha is what's interesting to you, then see if you can see how much of of what I'm offering here is adaptable uh, and try it. Um, and occasionally, of course, I'll, I'll 
as I go I'll try to remember and remind and put things in terms of mental dukkha as well okay so the first practice is uh, well the first thing I should say is probably everyone knows after uh, you know after even after being a young child um, that if we tense up, if we tense our muscles with pain, it uh, usually makes things worse. Not always, but usually makes things worse. So if there's pain, you know, a, a first thing to do for working in meditation, just relax the rest of the body as much as possible, because that tensing of the musculature is, is uh, only adding to the problem. So the first thing, maybe very obvious, but it's actually quite important, just relax the body as much as possible. And the first uh, practice is what we might call just simple mindfulness or uh, bare attention. Um, If we even want to use that word, but let's use it right now. So just bringing mindfulness and a kind of bare attention to the pain. What does that mean? It means um, trying to drop the story uh, around the pain. Um, The story uh, that goes with it of how it shouldn't be there, and uh, why me, and uh, maybe I'll be a cripple the rest of my life, and or whatever it is, or I am, I am this way, or it's not fair, or compared to other people, whatever it is, whatever story there is there. Um, the uh, attempt with the way of looking we call simple mindfulness or bare attention is to drop the story. That's one of its, uh, one of its, one of the, the strands of uh, unhelpful relationship that's, that's, uh, we're trying to drop. Dropping the story. And seeing if it's possible to come, as, as part of the dropping the story, to come in, into really into the present moment, in, into, uh, let's say, bare or direct contact with the sensations of, of the pain. So less story, just what does this actually feel like? And, and what does it feel like now? now, in this present moment, uh, not um, dwelling on how long it has been that way, how long, it has, how long this pain has been around, uh, not dwelling on how long it will be or might be this way. So we're not um, joining the dots. Well, if you know the practice I talk about sometimes dot to dot, um, seeing how pain gets constructed, uh, or actually most phenomena get constructed uh, but certainly dukkha phenomena get constructed by joining the dots in time and joining the dots in space. Um, so that's part of dropping the story. But really seeing, can I come in now? What does it feel like? What does it feel like now? What's the sense of it now? What's my experience of it now? What, uh, really getting that sense in the present moment, coming back to the present moment. So what's happening, if you like, is where. Uh, jettisoning the story, but we're also jettisoning uh, the projections of the uh, mind uh, into the past and the future. So that what we're uh, relating to and what we're actually perceiving and carrying in the moment is not a, a, a temporally extended experience that's then made heavier and more difficult by that sense of temporal extension all the way back in the past, all the way potentially in the future with the worry of all that. What it really is, is this sensation right now. These sensations right now. Um, it might also be possible as, as an aspect here, 
an aspect of what we call mindfulness and bear attention to even sometimes drop the label pain. Sometimes even that word pain, the labeling of it, starts to constitute something as pain. In other words, the label is not a neutral factor. It's not there is something, and then I label it afterwards, and it will be. It would feel just the same if I labeled it tomato, or if I labeled it uh, pleasure, or if I labeled it um, whatever. And we start to realize that pain is actually a, a fabricating constitutive factor. So part of the sort of attempt in the way of looking that we call mindfulness, simple mindfulness, or bare attention is is this, see if I can drop drop the labelling pain. Um, that the mind is, is either doing kind of uh, automatically or, or, or deliberately. Sometimes we might be labelling in a sort of Mahasi technique way, which can be really helpful. But at some point, it's like, hmm, maybe that, maybe that labelling is actually not so helpful because it's actually part of consolidating, solidifying, um, promulgating something. Um, so that's really interesting as well. So less story, more present moment, which means less less temporal extension, less less past and future and the worry to that, less construction by joining the dots in time. Um, and I could say also in space, perhaps, but let's just stick with the time one for now. Um, dropping the label, labeling of pain, etc. And there's in all that, there's less less reactivity, we could say. And uh, and in a way, one's also trying to be less reactive. It's part of even that initial movement of just relaxing, just relax the body. See if I can be less reactive here on in d- at different levels of my being. And what this uh, can lead to, if I if I just stay steady with that practice, keep trying with that practice, bringing that um, that way of looking, the mindfulness, the bare attention, is that it might just become. Uh, the pain just becomes, it's just sensations. Okay, It's stripped of all these other levels of story and temporal extension and and all that. Um, and even, it might be even stripped of the label of pain. It's just unpleasant sensations. It might be, uh, in, if the mindfulness is really strong, that even you find, even at this very basic level, that if you really sustain the mindfulness in these ways, keep kind of... Um, Dropping those those unhelpful factors out, uh, the, the temporal extending, the story, the labelling, the reactivity uh, at a certain level, um, that it might be then if the mindfulness is really sustained and really strong, and there's quite an intensity to the mindfulness, that uh, the degree of unpleasantness really means the degree of pain is uh, reduces right there as I'm. As I'm attending to it very carefully, very intently, with the mindfulness, moment after moment. So that's what we might what we might call the first practice. Um, actually, we might call it one version of the first practice because uh, a second way of doing that practice would be pretty much the same thing, but with uh, a, a much more spacious awareness. So in the first practice, let's say it was my back hurting or the small of my back or my knee or something and focuses the attention in a kind of narrow way on those on those sensations there and just works um, to kind of um, support the way of looking 
we're calling mindfulness or bear attention, which when we unpacked it meant those things that I explained. And it's just focusing there in that small region, narrow attention, over and over, um, uh, supporting, engaging that way of looking that we call mindfulness or bear attention. But one could also do the same thing within a much, much larger space. So actually, again, relax the body, then let the awareness get really large. Uh, I mean, as l- l- larger than the, 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 the room that you're in, uh, as large as, you know, up to the sky, even larger, you know, if, if it's possible. One, one way of really helping um, open up the awareness to a more spacious awareness uh, like that uh, is, is by listening. Because sounds come from all different distances and directions and just give some attention to listening. If you can do that for a while, just disregarding the pain, great. If you need to include the pain and open up to the listening, either way. Um, But somehow just trying or supporting or letting the awareness open up much more spaciously. Then the sensations of of pain, the sensations of pain, the the Vedana, the unpleasant Vedana, means the same thing, um, that are... uh, arising and passing there, flickering. As we pay more attention, we'll we'll notice all kinds of um, qualities of their texture and the fact that it kind of throbs or pulses and flickers, all of it meaning it's changing in time. We'll just naturally notice that. But all that kind of dance of appearing, disappearing, throbbing, pulsating, fluctuating sensations occurring in the body or somewhere in the body are, have a much larger context of this much, much larger space. So it's only a small area bubbling away like this unpleasantly in a much, much larger context. And in a way, so you have to practice this to actually see, oh, this is a really, really helpful thing to do. Um, in a way, we could say, well, what's happened then is that instead of the pain taking up, let's say, a hundred or ninety percent of the let's call it the space of our awareness um, it's taking up much much less and we actually have that sense here's just this area of pain a small area of pain in a much much vaster space and so its impact on on the being on the psyche on the chitta it, the felt sense of it is of something um, relatively small in a much larger space Actually, even that too, we could stay with that, and it can go very uh, to very deep, beautiful places, change our whole sense, open up our whole sense of things. But whether we practice it with a narrow attention, as I described at first, or with this much more spacious uh, attention and awareness, basically uh, that method of mindfulness or bare attention, both those ways of doing it, um, will lead to a uh, lessening of suffering in the moment. There will be less suffering in relation to or from the pain in the moment. We could say there's less fabrication of the suffering, because I, re- I realize then, oh, it's only when I look in these other ways, when I do kind of unwittingly drag in the temporal extension, when I do bring in my story and the poor me and the... Um, etc. Why me? And 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 I do bring in the kind of uh, labeling um, in a way that's actually constituting and uh, solidifying something. 
it's only when I do that that, that the pain is stronger. When I let go, when I take those things out or drop them out of the way of looking, the, sorry, the, the, suf- the suffering is stronger when those things are there. When I take those things out, the suffering is less. In other words, through, the, through this way of looking, mindfulness, bare attention, narrow or, or large attention, we are, we are fabricating less suffering. There is less suffering fabricated. And maybe, um, as, as we perhaps, it's some, you know, fairly good chance that at times there will also be uh, less fabrication of the unpleasant Vedana. Actually less pain. Not just less suffering around and in relation to pain, but less pain too. So all these factors, they're, they're fabricators. Okay? So we really want to understand this. Why? What's happening here? Um, well, just what, what we said, these, these factors of, of um, bringing the self in, um, bringing the story in, bringing reactivity in, papancha, temporal extension, labeling, they're all um, uh, fabricators of Vedana. So sometimes people talk as if um, Vedana is just a given. It's just... Um, it's what it is, and then we can minim- we, all we can do is minimize the suffering, the second arrow in relationship to it. And it might be with just these, this first practice, or these two versions of the first practice, that that's what we see. Yes, I can, I can minimize the suffering around it, but the pain, the intensity of the unpleasant pain remains what it is. As we go into the other practices, that whole uh, teaching of the two arrows, if you're familiar with it from, from the Buddha, um, is uh, is it the teaching? Yes. Well, it's not quite the teaching of the two hours, but the idea that there's suffering is an unnecessary addition to pain. Um, that's seen as a provisional truth, a provisional teaching. And we start to realize that um, as with the describing the in the wheel of dependent origination, the twelve links that self, papancha, reactivity, all this, they will fabricate the whole, uh, all the elements of that wheel, all the links of that chain. So as as there's more fabrication, as there are more of the fabrications of self, more story, more poor me, more why me, uh, whatever it is, uh, me compared to other people who I'm sure can sit comfortably and whatever, all that. As there are more of those kinds of fabrication, there's more fabrication of suffering, but there's also possibly more fabrication of it. And we may start to see it at, even at this level, even at this level. Or it may have to wait till um, the, the, the next levels of practice we'll go into in a second. Usually, where there's um, where there's Vedana, actually, there's usually some form of clinging. Now, you, you just slightly expand what I mean by clinging there. Usually when there's pleasant Vedana, we cling to it, we grasp at it, we want to get more of it, or we want to hang on to it at least. So there's clinging in the kind of, uh, the most common sense of that word. Usually, or I'd say, actually I'd say always, when there's unpleasant Vedana, now, let's start again. Always when there's pleasant Vedana, there's clinging. I know that's what 
Some of you won't have heard that, but if you are familiar enough with my teachings on dependent origination and emptiness, etc., I would say always, always where there's pleasant, always where there's vedna, there's clinging. Let's just say the habitual uh, response to, uh, for now at, at a certain level, the habitual response to pleasant or unpleasant vedna is clinging. We try to hang on to the pleasant or get more of it, and we try to push away, uh, we're aversive to the unpleasant. Also the so-called neutral, neither pleasant nor unpleasant, we tend to um, fall asleep, and actually there's a kind of clinging in that. Uh, Or get dull, disinterested, bored, uninterested, bored. Um, So... What we're this clinging, what we want to understand is how this clinging works as a fabricator. Okay, so there's one way, like I said, when the, when there's really a lot of pushing away or trying to hold on, there's there's this uh, the pain's very strong. There's a contraction of the muscles, um, and that contraction doesn't help. Um, there's also a contraction of awareness that happens with clinging. And as we mentioned when we talked about the second version of mindfulness with a much more spacious awareness, that contraction of awareness also doesn't help. It uh, Partly, you could say, as we said before, it increases the sort of sense of how pervasive the pain is, that it's taking up the whole of consciousness, the whole of experience. There's also a way in which we could say that a smaller awareness, um, like like a, uh, it it puts a pressure on something in in a way, or it can put a pressure on something. Just as a way, if we have a gas in in a container and we squeeze that container, so we shrink the container, the pressure of the uh, gas will increase. The intensity, the pressure in physics is the is the speed of the movement, the momentum that's related to the momentum, the kinetic energy of the movement, and um, so the, the, analogously, the pain increases when there's a, uh, the contraction of the awareness. But there's something more fundamental than this muscular contraction or contraction of awareness. Um, something more fundamental to the way that uh, clinging, uh, the degree of fabrication of Vedana is dependent on clinging. More clinging, more Vedana is fabricated. Certainly it's hopefully obvious to most practitioners, uh, even after they've practiced just a little bit of insight meditation, more clinging, more suffering. Now another level is more clinging not just more fabrication of suffering, more fabrication of Vedana itself. Two. Okay, so there's that level of practice, and it's really important, and it's a really basic skill for everyone to develop. It may or may not, as I said, reveal this deeper level of understanding about dependent origination, the way clinging fabricates Vedana. It may or may not. But, um, but then there's a whole other level. And so, for example, there are practices uh, such as the three characteristics of the, as ways of looking. As, uh, again, all this is in seeing the freeze. Um, but practicing the three characteristics in very specific ways. Um, I mean, really engaging them as ways of looking. 
Um, so those three, or actually any emptiness way of looking. Again, many, many in, in, in seeing the freeze. So three characteristics are dukkha, and uh, you know there's what I call dukkha method one and dukkha method two, and then with dukkha method two there's different variations. Like I said, I'm not going into detail because I've done this in so much detail elsewhere. You can find it certainly in Seeing the Freeze, and you can find recordings that talk about it. But there's many variations, and we can talk about welcoming practice, um, again, both with a, um, a narrow attention, with a spacious um, uh, attention or awareness. We can talk about directing metta to phenomena, to dharmas. Um, many, many practices here. Uh, again, can be done narrow and, and spacious attention. We can talk about emptiness practices such as um, seeing that the whole and the parts of something, let's say a pain or a region of pain, um, contemplating the mutual dependent rising and mutual emptiness of the whole and the parts of the pain. We can talk about uh, the practice of not one, not many. This pain is not one, not many. And that's a way of seeing its emptiness, uh, looking at it, looking at it, attending to the pain, feeling, sensing the pain. At the same time, we have this very delicate, agile, sophisticated understanding, very lightly, very um, uh, uh, um, in, almost like in shorthand, very delicately um, in the way of looking, wrapped up in the way of looking. It's not one, not many meaning it's empty. And uh, and that very uh, beautiful, profound practice, we can, uh, again, feel the pain, but be aware of the emptiness of any dualities, or particularly the emptiness of the duality of pain and pleasure. What does that do? Um, we can look at the pain and analyze it with the sevenfold reasoning or other reasonings. So, um, many, many possibilities here. Very, very powerful practices. Okay. Um, <clears throat> what we're doing there, again, most of them can be done with a, not all of them actually, some of them, uh, some of them can be done with a narrow attention, uh, focused on the pain, or with a wider attention. Many possibilities and many variations for each possibility in many cases. And what we're doing here is uh, we're engaging a way of looking uh, meditatively lightly, as I said the other day in the talk on uh, emptiness and ways of looking, that has um, much less clinging in it, much, much less clinging in it. So you can see that in the Dukkha 2 method. It's actually deliberately getting a sense, in some way or other, getting a sense of the clinging in the moment, any push-pull, any aversion, any hanging on, uh, any uh, tension in the relationship with uh, a phenomenon that one is attending to and relaxing that clinging. So some of them work obviously very directly with the clinging, some uh, much more indirectly, or they're working um, with the avijja and reducing the avijja in the moment, in the way of looking. So I'm attending to this phenomenon, this pain, with um, some degree uh, of less clinging, at some level or some aspect of clinging, and some degree and some aspect of avijja has gone. And again, because of the map that the Buddha gave of the links of dependent origination, less clinging, less fabrication. Less avijja, also less fabrication. 
And as I said the other day, avidya also is actually uh, just a, a, another mode of clinging. It's a subtle mode of clinging. And it's seen as such in, in Mahayana terminology. But this is what we're doing. And this is what an insight way of looking is, basically. It's uh, relating to, attending to, sensing something or other, any phenomenon whatsoever, um, through a lens that has, in some way or another, a little or a lot less clinging in it, a little or a lot less avijja in it. And because of that, that phenomena right now, right here, right now, in this moment, that I'm still attending to it, uh, uh, is fabricated less. The intensity of the unpleasant Vedana actually starts to decrease, and sometimes dramatically so. And we can talk about a kind of, again, hierarchy of potency of these kinds of practices in a way that's partly... Well, there's a thread through seeing that frees um, that traces that hierarchy. So I think I said the other day, you know, to look at something through the lens empty, understanding that it's fabricated, um, is much more potent as a way of looking than just looking at it as uh, anatta, which is usually more potent than, uh, let's say, just impermanence. And looking at it through a lens of uh, the, the awareness that knows it is anatta, is not me, not mine, is usually more potent than this pain, is not me, not mine. Empty, it's empty of inherent existence, it's empty of having any phenomenal self, this pain. That's even more powerful, etc., etc. So there's a kind of hierarchy, and you can, uh, in a way, um, seeing that freeze is kind of, uh, let's say, uh, not completely, but loosely organized in, in the progression of that hierarchy of potency, just because it's actually a hierarchy of, um, uh, or a progression of both meditative skill and also depth of understanding, an understanding that comes from experience. As I said the other day, I can't look at something with a, with a way of looking um, that, that understands it's empty until I have really understood for myself that it's empty. For example, because I've seen that it's fabricated, because I've looked at it with, say, the second Dukkha method or the first Dukkha method or Anatta and seen that it fades, therefore it's fabricated, dependent on the way of looking. When that's seen so many times and felt, and the impact on the being felt so many times, that understanding is consolidated. Then that consolidated understanding um, can be uh, engaged, can be used as a way of looking. Um, I've, I've moved to another level of practice there, another depth. Okay. So there's um, there's lots of these uh, these kinds of practices, these unfabricating ways of looking, these insight ways of looking. And there's lots of them, but there's also lots to them. So as I said, for example, um, take the Dukkha method, what I call Dukkha method number two, um, there's lots of variations. Or we just mentioned the anatta. Um, the anatta, not me, not mine, are, we can regard the pain itself, the unpleasant Vedana, as not me, not mine. But we can also uh, attend to the unpleasant Vedana, the pain, at the same time we're including an awareness of the awareness of, of, of that pain, 
including both, and then regard the awareness um, of the of the pain. Our awareness of it, regard that as anatta. Or, um, for example, the usually completely unnoticed, uh, so to speak, unconscious intention to pay attention. Whenever we pay attention to something, I don't just mean as a, oh, right now I've really got to pay attention, or deliberately in meditation. I mean just paying attention to anything. Whenever we hear a sound, there's a movement of the attention there, or if, 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 if we hear a sound. Um, there's a movement of attention to, uh, towards that object. And so that attention is something that, invo- that needs an intention behind it. And that intention is almost always uh, unconscious, we don't realize it, unless we're actually making an exercise and trying to pay attention. Then we are really going to pay attention. But even then, we only realize uh, usually a very gross level of that intention. But there's, in every moment of consciousness, you could say, the mind is attending to something. It has to be. In any moment of experience, which means any moment of perception, which means any moment of appearance or phenomena, the mind is paying attention, and with that, there is an intention to pay attention to that phenomena. Now, we could, as we're attending to the pain, also uh, include in our awareness the very, very subtle uh, sense of the intention to pay attention. It's a very, very subtle, moment-to-moment, almost throbbing movement, very, very subtle in the mind. And we could regard that intention to pay attention as anatta, as not me, not mine. Or we could regard our aversion. I notice there's some aversion to this pain. And what if I regard the aversion, the pushing away, the subtle, just wanting to even it's not the, I'm talking about aversion, not at the level of the mind saying, oh, this is terrible, I wish it would go away. Just the subtle, energetic uh, pushing, energetic trying to distance oneself. Um, we could regard that aversion as anatta. We could ad- adopt a way of looking where the actual object includes not just the, the pain, but also the sense of aversion to the pain, and regard the aversion as anatta, as not me, not mine. It's a more sophisticated way of looking. And the same um, with if we move to a level where we're engaging a way of looking that that understands empty, empty. It's looking at things as empty. So there's all those possible objects, not just the unpleasant pain, not just the pain, but also the awareness of the pain is also... uh, Empty, which again means more than it's. It's not just me, means more than it's not me, not mine. It's not just not me, not mine. Anatta. It's empty of phenomenal existence. That's a very, very deep level of practice and a very, very um, even quite sophisticated awareness, uh, understanding. Excuse me, sophisticated understanding. So to be able to do that, but there, there are, and, and again, with the intention to pay attention, or with the aversion, the aversion, it has no inherent existence. The aversion is empty, etc. So there are many objects. It's as if what we could say is that, you know, um, pain is a dependent arising. Okay, we've talked about, we'll begin to see through these practices how pain is a dependent arising because it's dependent on the way of looking. And you start to see if I can really uh, pay attention 
engage some of these ways of looking, the pain just fades. It just disappears. It dissipates. It dissolves. Or at least it attenuates. We begin to understand the pain, the unpleasant pain is dependent on my way of looking. But it's also dependent on all these other factors. It's dependent on attention. It's dependent on um, my identifying with the awareness uh, of it. All these factors. And many, many more. So we could say actually pain itself is a dependent arising in, in that it is a constellation. It's, uh, if, if you like, it's many things uh, threaded together, woven together. It's already a thicket of things. It's hard to separate out these things. But meditatively, one can, um, let's say, separate them out enough Ultimately, they're not separable, and that's one of the real deep understandings uh, that emptiness teaches. But meditatively, practically, in our art, in our meditative art, it's possible to separate them out enough to isolate them, to work on uh, ways of looking that target, that pinpoint different um, uh, twigs in this thicket, different thorns in this thicket, different um, uh, threads in this tangle. And, and that starts doing something. But really pain is a, const, a constellation, we could say. And any or all of those elements within the constellation of what we call pain can be objects of an insight way of looking. We can practice, we can train our insight way of looking um, on, on those objects. So pain is a dependent arising fabricated by the whole constellation. And um, and it's also uh, a dependent arising fabricated by unskillful ways of looking at the whole constellation. Unskillful. Most of them are just habitual and completely unconscious. You understand? So pain itself is dependent arising in terms of it's, it's, it's fabricated by all these... Um, all these other factors of attention and, and whatnot, but it's also uh, dependent on ways of looking. It's a fabrication dependent on ways of looking at that whole constellation. Okay, well, that's a huge area, and I said I've gone into it in, in lots and lots of detail elsewhere, so I'm just kind of listing it and unpacking a bit of the understanding. Um, right now. A third possibility um, for those of you who are have developed jhana practice to some degree. Um, uh, there's a quite lovely and also quite amazing um, possibility and way of practicing here. And um, actually offered it on this uh, recent jhana retreat at Gaia House. And I think a lot of people were just uh, quite amazed at what happened and the magic of it and that it would be possible and what it sort of um, suggested about the, the nature of things and the reality of things that we believe were just givens. Just primary, like I said, oftentimes our understanding of Buddha Dharma is that Vedana is just a given. 
It's just what it is. This is what we're given. Unpleasant Vedana, pleasant neither. It might vary from person to person. This person likes that sound. The that another person doesn't like that sound. And that might depend on history, etc. But in the moment, it's just a given. And there's a whole other level of understanding which really understands that's actually not the case. Vedana is not a given. Vedana is a dependent arising, dependent on how we're looking at it in the moment, on the way of relating to it in the moment, the way of looking at it in the moment. So here, once one's developed uh, a kind of enough familiarity or mastery at a certain uh, level of, of, of jhana, uh, wherever that is, first jhana, fourth jhana, whatever, um, then one can, if one is practicing enough with, with, with that familiarity and there's enough skill with it, one can actually begin to take what I call the primary nimitta of that jhana. So, for example, in the first jhana it would be piti. That's the dominant flavor of the first jhana and the thing that I'm giving most attention to. The, the primary perception. Um, and if one's familiar enough with the and skilled enough with the first jhana, here's this uh, area of pain in the body, and one can just decide to see it to feel it, to sense it as PT, which means uh, bliss or ecstasy or rapture or, or, or uh, certainly means pleasant feeling. So what was unpleasant, one just decides to see it as pleasant. Based on what? Based on my familiarity with that perception um, from my jhanic experience. And if one is uh, skilled in the second jhana, one can feel, sense, see this area of pain in the body as happiness. It's no longer dukkha. It's no longer unpleasant. It has become pleasant. And its it, its very texture and vibration is happiness. Or again, through the different jhanas, a kind of luminous stillness it can become. It's kind of uh, not even pleasant anymore. It's kind of very subtly pleasant, really. But technically speaking, it's a kind of neither pleasant nor unpleasant Actually, it's subtly pleasant. So this area of pain has just now become an area of luminous stillness. There's no pain there. And the fifth jhana has just become empty space. Or it's become consciousness. If I take the primary limiter from the sixth jhana, it's become nothingness, etc. So again, this might sound completely unbelievable, but as I said, many people who'd never even heard of this possibility um, before coming on... Uh, Retreat at Guy House, just over three weeks, just over three weeks duration of retreat. Began playing with this when I suggested it, and and found, wow, wow, this is really possible. Where you could say, coloring the perception of an air, we're changing the perception of an air. There's a kind of magic, just as there will be if one really develops the insight ways of looking practice. There will be a sense of, wow, this dependent origination business is magic. There's something, this unfabricating, fabricating, dependent on the way of looking in the moment. It's really magic. It feels like magic. And our ability to do this, to take, let's say, um, an area of pain in the body and to just have the intention of feeling it as pleasure, as, as sukha, or as... Um, as pity or whatever it is, or as, as nothingness. Um, our ability to do that um, 
strongly implies, there's only one conclusion, it's, it, it's, it's empty. It doesn't exist, this pain, as a given, as a, this unpleasant Vedana, as a given, as, as a thing that's a kind of absolute reality independent of the way of looking. It doesn't exist only from its own side, so to speak. It doesn't have inherent existence. So when we when we practice this way, let's say we develop jhanas and do that, or let's say the insight ways of looking and that happens, um, we understand it's empty. It's a dependent arising, but dependent on the present. Not just dependent on the past. Yes, this pain is dependent on my injury. Yes, this pain is dependent on my illness. Whatever it is. Yes, this pain is dependent on sitting hours and hours and hours and the body getting stiff or whatever. It's a dependent arising, dependent on the way of looking in the moment as well. So we, we understand something, we have that insight, and we, we, we get that, and we get that it's empty, it's dependent arising, uh, and it's malleable. It's a fabrication, dependent on the way of looking, and it's malleable. It's not a solid, fixed thing. Not just that it's impermanent, and not fixed in that way, and not solid in that way, it's actually malleable. Our way of looking uh, shapes it, can shape it, it does shape it, and with development of art and skill in meditation, it can shape it, and shape it from pain to pleasure, and all different flavors of pleasure, in fact. Because that deep nothingness is also, in a, in a strange kind of mystical way, a kind of pleasure. Even in its kind of neither, being neither pleasant nor unpleasant, it's actually a kind of pleasure. So the Buddha talks sometimes, he says, sometimes I teach three kinds of Vedana, pleasant, unpleasant, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Other times I teach just pleasant and unpleasant. Anyway. That's a, in, in a way that two, the, the, two, uh, the two kinds of Vedana model is a, is a more subtle teaching. So seeing this in practice, feeling it in practice, doing it in practice, and feeling, sensing the results firsthand, um, that area of pain there. It's not that, okay, I'll just go and pay attention to where it feels good. I mean, that's a skillful thing to do, as we explained on the jhana retreat as well. But I'm looking at that pain there, and that pain transforms. It is malleable. It's transformed through adopting a, a different way of looking at it. So we understand that. And... The, the very understanding of the emptiness, the dependent origination, the fabricated nature and the malleability of uh, Vedana, of perception, in this case of pain, implies the possibility. It, sh- it, it, it uh, uh, strengthens and adds to our sense that this is possible. That perception is malleable, that Vedana is malleable. So we do it, we understand the emptiness, the pen origination, the malleability. And that understanding of the emptiness, the pen origination, the malleability actually, um, actually ha- shores up our sense of the possibility and actually increases our skill. It's somehow like our very knowing of that, technically, our very knowing of the emptiness, the dependent origination, the malleability of it, is... When we when we have that knowing, there's less avijja because there's less avijja, 
the pain is actually more malleable because it's avijja which fabricates uh, the pain of fabricates the kind of solidity so actually um, when we when we're engaging when we're confident and we're, we're approaching something with a way of looking that knows that it's malleable it actually becomes more malleable but that knowledge of malleability was needs to be first dependent on our experience as before so it might be um, through through these practices, through the jhanic practices, that, that just there's um, no one. Certainly, there's no unpleasantness there. But it may be that, that we replace it with pleasure. It may be that it's replaced with a very deep um, fading and unfabricating of the vedna. For example, in some of those, uh, when we play with perception in a way that we're just seeing consciousness there, or we're just seeing nothingness there. It's a very deep fading, a very deep unfabricating of the Vedna. It is not yet a complete uh, un, uh, uh, unfabricating. It's not a complete cessation of perception and Vedana. Uh, but it's very deep. It's gone beyond uh, the Vedana of pleasure, the perception of pleasure. Okay, so these, again, they might sound just... Uh, unreachable, but they're really, really not. I'm going through quite quickly because I've talked and written elsewhere again. There's a fourth possibility, a fourth um, basket of possibilities, level of possibilities. So it's possible to, once one has developed in in uh, some of these emptiness ways of looking and insight ways of looking, it's actually possible to look at a pain, to sense a pain. Again, you can listen and see how much of this will apply to all kinds of other phenomena. Uh, not just physical pain, maybe mental pain, maybe other things as well, a lot of it. So there's there's much more broader lessons here as well, broader relevance. But once one has really um, developed some of the art and skill there in these emptiness ways of looking, one can... Um, engage an emptiness way of looking. Let's say, let's say it's, I'm, I'm looking at something empty, and I understand it means fabricated or just a perception or uh, empty of having inherent existence because I've done the sevenfold reasoning before and I've seen it many times um, that it can't have inherent existence. So I'm engaging one of these um, deep emptiness practices, but it's as if I'm I'm not. Uh, completely putting my foot down on the insight pedal, so to speak. So I'm in in my way of looking, there's uh, not not the full uh, the full amount of the, 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 the kind of tincture of the insight of emptiness. I'm putting in maybe a half amount. Or in the, in the sort of car analogy, I'm I'm pressing on the on the gas on the accelerator, but but not completely. I've got it kind of. I've got a whole. There's a whole range there of how much I can kind of lean on the knowing of emptiness within the way of looking in any moment. Again, it might sound outrageously uh, sophisticated and impossible. It's really not. Um, it just takes practice, but practicing in a certain way. It won't come about just because I've spent 10,000 hours on a cushion trying to be mindful. Um, I have to practice in certain ways that these uh, that this kind of level of art is developed. 
uh, that it builds up stage by stage. So what happens in this one is I am engaging a deep emptiness way of looking, but I'm I'm playing with uh, the kind of intensity of the emphasis on emptiness within that way of looking. How how much I'm leaning, so to speak, on that insight of emptiness. How much I'm pressing on that pedal. How many drops of this uh, tincture of insight are in the way of looking. And then there's some fading, but not a complete fading. Because if I if I really uh, if I've developed those practices, those insight ways of looking, particularly emptiness um, ways of looking, then when I when I attend to a pain and I'm I'm looking at it as empty, empty, and, I, and that I've consolidated that practice, I've developed it. That pain will fade; it will disappear. Here I'm actually uh, looking at it as empty, but not allowing it to completely fade. You think, well, well why, why would you do that? Why would you bother to do that if you can have, have it absolutely completely fade? So this, I think, is a very interesting question. And there's two answers uh, we could give. Um, the first one is what I would consider the m- more important one. And it's, I'll state the answer as a question, actually. Why, so here, here's the question that we started with. Why would you want to only partially fade some pain when you could completely fade it. It's dukkha, it's unpleasant. Why would you want it? Why would why would you not just want to fade it completely? And the question, oh sorry, the answer in the form of a question, uh, I would put like this: What is most sacred? What is most sacred? That's that's the answer. So, that's the answer to this question, why? Why I might only want to partially fade it at times. Now this question, what is most sacred, uh, is actually a question only for those practitioners who know through their own experience in meditation, through their own repeated experience in meditation, and um, their understanding, who know um, this deep, complete fading of things. Who know the unfabricated, who know cessation, and the implications of deep fading, implying that the total emptiness of any phenomenal reality, any experience, any appearance, any perception, any Vedana. Excuse me. So this answer that I'm going to give probably, uh, well, before we get on to soul-making at least, we'll just talk in terms of classical Buddha Dharma, this answer only uh, really will make sense to people who know about very deep fading and know personally through their experience, through having developed the practices that I've just talked about, particular insight ways of looking, which has to be based on the mindfulness, etc., so the, the answer is a question. What is most sacred? And if you know, uh, and you've gone as far as that you know, complete cessation, complete deep fading, un- reached the unfabricated, recognized the fabricated and therefore illusory nature of all phenomenal reality, then you're at a point when there is likely to be a hierarchy of sacredness. Phenomenal reality is an illusion. Uh, it's a fabrication, which has this connotation of illusion and lie. 
as does the word concoction, both in translations of Sankara. Um, in contrast to which, the unfabricated, the complete fading of all perception and all Vedana is real, is true, is because it's unfabricated. It's not a dependent arising, it seems. So one is probably at that point uh, leaning or looking at the world um, as the lower tier, if you like, in, in, a, in a hierarchy. The fabricated in contrast to the unfabricated. And the unfabricated is the true and the, the holy, if you like, the sacred. But as I've explained uh, elsewhere, we can actually then not, we cannot stop at that point. We can go deeper in our exploration of fabrication and emptiness. I'm not going to explain it here again. It's in seeing freeze and in, in uh, well, I think it's in that talk, um, it's a two-part talk, Approaching the Dharma. I think it's called Other, other Places as well we begin to see the emptiness of fabrication. Emptiness of the process of fabrication and the emptiness of time. Fabrication is a process in time. The emptiness of fabrications, the emptiness of the process of fabrication, the emptiness of time. And all that, we start as we go deeper then, we start to realize the emptiness of the unfabricated, which exists in a kind of dualistic opposition with the fabricated. If the fabricated is empty, is not really a fabricated, then uh, the unfabricated too, as a dualistic um, contrast, kind of is collapsed. Not as an experience, but as a duality, it's collapsed. There is no hierarchy. And we come to a deeper level of realization, deeper even than realizing the unfabricated through the cessation, the total uh, unfabricating of the phenomenal world of perception of Vedana. We come to a deeper realization um, that's non-dualistic. And what opens up for us then is a sense of a world of empty, divine, and magical appearances. They're already magical to see that they're dependent on the way of looking, dependent on fabricating in the moment. But magical at a whole other level when you also realize that fabrication too is not a real thing. And a time in which things could be fabricated is not a real thing. The whole, you're at the edge of the level of what even magical might possibly mean. And now emptiness starts to have a bigger meaning than fabrication. At first they were a little bit synonymous if you follow the ways of looking approach. Now emptiness means more than fabrication. And because there's no hierarchy of holiness, of sacredness, divinity everywhere, holiness, sacredness everywhere, The world of phenomena 
becomes a world of empty, magical and divine appearances. But that, here's where language gets so tricky, because someone could hear something like that, and perhaps they only know a level, still a very lovely level of practice, but perhaps they only know that level of practice that I call uh, the vastness of awareness, where there's a very spacious, kind of effortless seeming awareness, and phenomena arise and pass um, within that uh, vast awareness, within that space, spacious awareness, and they seem very insubstantial, these phenomena just diaphanous, see through them. They're they're of the nature, uh, of the substance of the awareness. Um, Some people call that um, the the opening to the nature of mind or realization of the nature of mind, etc. So someone just familiar with that level of practice could, could say, yes, yes, it's a world of empty, magical and divine appearances. I know exactly what you're talking about. But no, 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 no. This is really, really important. I'm talking about a whole other level. So beautiful as that, those openings and those perceptions uh, are at the level of what I call the vastness of awareness. A really, really important stage from a lot of practitioners, maybe the majority of insight meditation practitioners. We're talking now about a whole other level. As I said, this this is only for people who've gone beyond that to the total fading and cessation, to the complete unfabricated, beyond any sense of space, any sense of awareness in, 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 in that sense of vastness of awareness, any sense of phenomena arising, any sense of uh, all, all of that, any sense of time, any sense of the present moment understood the implications of that, and then gone beyond even that. So we're talking really about several uh, quite significant uh, stages further than this vastness of awareness of what some people call the nature of mind, uh, realization of practice of the nature of mind, nature of awareness. Okay, so when, when I use, this is where, you know, the same words can be understood or used at very different levels. So here, when we understand a world of empty, magical, and divine appearances, um, it's all three of those words, empty, magical, and divine, have just very different uh, levels of connotation. They're imbued with a very different level of understanding. Really stretched uh, further there. So, the question I asked in, in <coughs> as an answer <coughs> in response to the question, why, why would you only want to half fade when you can fully fade on pain and unpleasantness, is what is most sacred? And if this sense of non-dualistic uh, world of uh, empty, magical, and divine appearances, that means that pain, that half-faded pain, actually, so it will attenuate a little bit, can't help, uh, attenuate some um, is a world is, is that pain is empty, magical, and divine. Then I've not just gotten rid of pain; I've maybe attenuated it somewhat, but it's become empty, magical, and divine. And if I care about sacredness, and if sacredness is part of what I want, or let's say it's not let's say at least that, it's not that all I ever want is to get rid of my pain, 
all I ever want is a reduction in dukkha, then this level actually becomes very important. And this ability to, based on my understanding of this non-duality between fabricated and unfabricated, which is based on my understanding of the emptiness of fabricated, unfabricated fabrications, time, the process of fabricating, which is based on my understanding of fabrication in the first place, which is based on my practice of way of looking, then that actually becomes the, the one that opens me in this moment uh, to a beautiful sense of sacredness, deep, profound, mystical, and, t- and that touches me deeply. Still got some pain there in that moment, but there's a whole different sense of the pain, self, and existence if I care about sacredness. So that, I think, is, for me, the most important answer to the question, why would I only want to, why would I want an incomplete fate, want this, you know, uh, only half fading when I could uh, actually fade the pain completely? I would say that's the most important answer. But... Uh, historically, there's a very related answer, but it has to do with Buddhology, the notion of what a Buddha is. And um, I'm only going to allude to this. I may or may not come back to it in the context of another talk at some future time. But there's a difference between a... There's quite a big difference between the notion, uh, the Theravada notion of what a Buddha is and what a Buddha mind is, and and does, and a Mahayana notion of what a Buddha is, and what a Buddha mind uh, is and does. In other words, the Buddhologies between Theravada and Mahayana are actually quite different. And in in the Mahayana teachings, um, it's said, uh, I think I mentioned this the other day in a talk at Guy House, I'm pretty sure, um, it said only a Buddha can uh, look at a phenomenon and thoroughly look at it, knowing its emptiness, without it completely fading. Only the non-dual, it's called gnosis, wisdom awareness, only the non-dual wisdom awareness, or jnana in Pali and Sanskrit, only the non-dual jnana of a Buddha is capable of fully knowing the emptiness of appearances, fully knowing in that moment, the emptiness of appearances, at the same time uh, as keeping those appearances from from fading. So that's a kind of very basic tenet in in Mahayana teachings. It's in the Mahayana Sutra Lankara and the Mahayana Sangraha, the very core texts of Mahayana teaching. Uh, Tsongkhapa, great Tibetan teacher, founder of the Geluk school, reiterates it in his... uh, Illumination of Thought, commentary on a uh, basic text of Chandrakirti centuries earlier. Um, Mipam Rinpoche comes back to it from a different strand. He's a Nyingma master. Um, so it's in the different streams of the Tibetan lineages as well. Not a lot of people know it, though. Not a lot of people know that teaching or know just quite uh, the import and the significance of that teaching. Um, in the Mahayana, for Mahayana philosophy. 
So I said, it has to do with Buddhology. I'm not going to go into this too much. And what is the aim of practice? So Bodhisattva is someone who's aiming or has vowed to become a Buddha. But in the Mahayana, a Buddha is not someone who, who is then born, like the story of Siddhartha, then becomes a Buddha, teaches for a while, and then dies and just disappears because they're not reborn anymore, like an arahant. Um, in the Mahayana uh, version of Buddhology, a Buddha is someone who uh, is able to be fully uh, awakened, fully enlightened. That means no more avijja at all, um, but they can be in the world. They are reborn, so to speak, or at least in, in most of the Mahayana Buddhologies, an emanation of them is is. Uh, appears in the world. The Rupakaya, the three bodies of, of a Buddha, the Rupakaya, the emanation of the Buddha. So there's all kinds of, you know, arcane-sounding and convoluted-seeming and sophisticated uh, Mahayana teachings that actually come back uh, or trace are rooted in this basic problem. How is it that if I don't have any avijja in any moment... Uh, that I perceive anything. Because for a normal human being, as the Mahayana um, Sangraha says, and, and those Mahayana texts, for a normal human being, when I look uh, at something, when I engage a way of looking that has no avijja in it, then that phenomenon fades. There's no perception of that phenomenon. There's less avijja, therefore, uh, well, there's no avijja, therefore no, no perception. So the question is, um, how can a Buddha then be reborn into the world of perception? How can they be in the world, or at least an emanation of them be in the world, and help, continue to help, instead of just reaching enlightenment, teaching for a few years, and then not being reborn, and therefore not being of help? So, with the full uh, weight and force of their, their complete prajna, uh, panya, wisdom, insight, and the jnana, the gnosis, which means no avijja, and with no unskillful sankharas, no karma of uh, subtle claving, uh, craving or clinging. How can a Buddha be reborn without avijja and without any sankharas? unskillful sankharas. Um, be reborn so that they can be in the world, which means that they have to perceive, they have to, uh, so that they can help. To help you have to perceive, which means there needs to be a world, there needs to be a perception of a world. So some, somewhere there's an, an arahant um, is totally liberated, but is, uh, you know, has removed their avijja completely, but they still have a kind of momentum of sankharas, of karmic momentum of sankharas, that's only exhausted when the arahant dies. So it's a bit like uh, a, a car been running um, and then runs out of petrol, and its momentum, even though it's run out of petrol, it's run out of the avijja that would keep it going, it's still going to go for, for a while until... Until you know the conditions are such that it, the friction of the road or whatever or a hill makes it stop.
So that's one of the models for how an arahant is in the world. Their, their continued existence until they die is just propelled by old karma, uh, you know, the stream of, of sankharas coming from past karma. And then at death, that's exhausted and they never get reborn because there's no more avidya and the stream of sankharas is exhausted. But if you're not reborn, then uh, the, you can't help. And if you don't perceive, so reborn into the world or, or the world of perception is reborn, I can't help. So I can't have infinite compassion. So the Bodhisattva in Mahayana teaching has a different aim. They're aiming to be in the world with that full prajna, full, full jhana, which means no avijja, etc. And, and they need to perceive uh, at the same time. Anyway, um, this is a, spawns all kinds of complicated uh, conundra and philosophies and things in the Mahayana. But very few people know the roots of some of these teachings, or know it's like it's as if the Mahayana were given a kind of riddle to solve, and uh, did so very, very, I think, beautifully and creatively and variously in terms of how they figured that out. So what Vajrayana practice is then is essentially a mimicking of the Buddha mind. Tantra and Vajrayana, this seeing of divinities and seeing appearances as divinities. So if you read tantric texts, a lot of them are about seeing uh, seeing the elements, uh, earth, air, fire and water, as divinities, etc. Seeing appearances as divine is a sort of stock Vajrayana phrase. When, we, when one practices the different Vajrayana practices, one can actually conceive of them as what we're really doing is mimicking a Buddha's mind. And the hope is that in mimicking a Buddha's mind, we eventually become just like a Buddha, just through the habit of mimicking. And what we're mimicking is that ability to uh, fully know the emptiness of something at the same time as, um, as, as, as uh, sustaining the appearances without, without them fading. That only the, the non-dual jnana, wisdom awareness of a Buddha, Mahayana Buddha, is able to fully know the emptiness of appearances without those appearances fading. All the rest of us um, need to, either we're leaning on the emptiness insight pedal uh, fully, in which case it will, uh, the appearance that we're looking at will, will fade, will disappear, the perception won't get fabricated, or we have to back off that pedal and let the appearance reconstitute. So when we're p- playing with this incomplete fading, you're actually playing with um, a lightly touching, lightly including, lightly emphasizing the emptiness insight within the way of looking so that it doesn't completely fade. And in that way, you're mimicking the, the Buddha mind, the Buddha perception. And as I explained earlier, then it's possible that um, uh, one one starts to perceive in that in that space in that middle ground there, dependent on all the insight and art of practice um, from before, and starts to be able to perceive all things as bliss. 
primordial cosmic divine bliss, not just as piti, for example. So yes, pleasant, yes, divine, but blessed. The bliss here means something else in the, in the Vajrayana teachings. The nature of all things is bliss, as it says. Not just that they're all pleasant, but they're divine and blessed. So, you know, Zogchen is a teaching that I think has uh, is said to have nine levels within it, nine levels of teaching. Um, but I don't know how often this kind of thing gets included, so that uh, it's, it will be very understandable or very common to hear uh, Zogchen teachings or practice them or read about them and actually just understand them all at the most, only at that other level that we were talking about before in terms of the vastness of awareness and so-called nature of a mind. And a lot of the words uh, can be used at different levels, different levels of understandings and different levels of the art of practice. Divine, magical appearances, bliss, um, insubstantial, you know, whatever it is. Empty even. Um, so there's there's a there's a lot here, uh, but I'm not going to say more about it now. What I, what I am going to say is basically through the development of both our insight and our meditative art, this this uh, way of practicing I'm talking about now, where there's this incomplete fading, deliberate incomplete fading. Um, through through the gradual development of our insight. Uh, into emptiness and our meditative art, we are kind of given or is open for us both the license and the ability to fabricate for the sake of more sacredness, for the sake of of being touched uh, by a sense of sacredness, of divinity, of beauty, for the sake of opening to that and 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 uh, immersing oneself in that being in that for the sake of sacredness and beauty and a whole other level of what we might call healing so there's physical healing obviously there's the kind of fading of a pain and having some relief and then this kind of uh, divine contextualizing or this transubstantiation of the pain into something magical, empty, and divine, and a cosmos that's magical, empty, and divine, a cosmos of appearances that are magical, empty, and divine. That constitutes a whole other level of healing. But the license there uh, is given what I call the license to fabricate for that purpose and in that way is based on uh, in other words, for Lysus, we have the understanding that this is a deeper insight. Actually, not as deeper than going all the way, just going all the way into the unfabricated, complete unfabricating. But it's only a deeper insight if we have experienced and understood that deeper or complete fading, that complete unfabricating, the unfabricated. Understand? It's not. If I haven't understood, then uh, only a relative 
sort of relative insubstantializing of pain or the world of phenomena is not necessarily uh, the deeper insight. But if I have gone all the way and then gone beyond that, I've gone all the way to the unfabricated and then gone beyond that, then I understand that this partial place, this this uh, partial um, fading, this kind of middle region, empty yet appearing, I understand that that uh, embodies, if you like, manifests the deeper insight. But only if I've gone, um, in terms of my fading experience and understanding, deeper. So, then there's all those, you know, four groups of practices there, I suppose. Um, the mindfulness in a couple of different ways, the insight ways of looking, the uh, playing with perception with jhanic qualities, the um, deep emptiness ways of looking but without the complete fading towards the sacredness. There's also a whole set of practices that... Uh, usually get called um, exchanging self and other. Uh, and talking about really exchanging the happiness of self and other. Um, so this, I won't say too much about that, but again, it's in Seeing That Freeze. Uh, there's a section on that with, uh, by that point, uh, what will be, a, again, they, it depends. What's possible here in this set of practices of exchanging self and other depends a lot on what one has developed in previous insight ways of looking, uh, practices and understandings of emptiness and fabrication and all that. But basically, here's this pain, here's this dukkha, and this applies just as well to mental dukkha or hindrances, I think I threw this out on the jhana retreat, or depression or whatever it is. Here's this dukkha, and I start to relate to it in, in a very different way. I say, let I take on, I accept, uh, I want this dukkha now. While I'm actually in contact with it, I'm paying attention to it, this dukkha here, now, this experience, I take that on um, so that someone somewhere else, maybe someone I will never know, never ever meet, um, I, I take it from them to relieve them of their burden of dukkha. So it's a kind of magical thinking. Um, or one can also do the opposite with one's with one's happiness, and actually, when one experiences happiness, or even just imagines experiencing some kind of happiness, some specific experience of happiness, specific experience of dukkha, and actually, with the happiness, one one uh, gives that away. One gives it to someone else in meditation. So again, we're talking we're talking about not a philosophy or a sort of um, in a way of living but a, a, but a meditative way of looking which again means it's light it's deric- delicate, it's agile, it's subtle and, we're talk- and, and it's in contact with this experience if we're talking about physical pain it's in contact with the physical pain and then looking at it in a certain way so I'm taking it on in a way I'm welcoming it in that way it's very related of course to the, the welcoming practice or the certain version of uh, Dukkha Method 2. A very, very beautiful practice. Connects us with others and the heart and beautiful intention and love and compassion. 
also magical. So many possibilities here. So many possibilities. Because when I decide to take on this suffering, this experience of the suffering right now, um, in that taking on, I'm also, and this is why it's related to Dukkha Method too, I'm actually lessening my uh, normal, habitual, compulsive um, aversion, pushing away. I'm relaxing that aversion. And that actually, one of the things it does is it starts attenuating uh, because there's less aversion, there's less clinging, because there's less clinging, there's less fabricating of the unpleasant. So it actually makes it easier to bear. Then if I, uh, I can, again, linger in that beautiful space where the heart is connected, the pain is eased somewhat, I'm taking on for others. So I'm connected with others, with, with the compassion, with the beautiful intention, with the more sacrificial intention, and uh, and the attention to the to the unpleasant vedana, which is attenuating because I've changed my relationship to them in the moment. One can also mix it with emptiness, because as I do that, they they get unfabricated more. Maybe that's my first taste of unfabricating, and I start to realize, oh, they're empty. Or maybe I've understood they're empty from other insight ways of looking. But then I can play um, with these empty, uh, these empty um, sensations, this empty unpleasantness. I take it on. Knowing it's empty, it's easier to take it on for your sake, etc. There's so many um, variants here and possibilities and so, such a beautiful um, realm of practices, group of practices can be really creative, and again, um, doing this can uh, really open up the malleability of perception and the sense of um, d- divinity of perception. Mixing love with emptiness, and again, uh, in a way, taking us towards the Buddha mind, or mimicking the Buddha mind. And so, if you like, towards more tantric, some some of the tantric practices, Vajrayana practices. A lot of possibilities here. Really beautiful, really creative, really, really worth uh, playing with. And sometimes, of course, what happens, you know, very understandably, very normally, when there's dukkha, mental or physical, is that we do, um, the self contracts around it. And, and the self gets kind of hard um, and woven around the pain, mental or physical. And here we're partly just really opening up uh, the sense of self, opening up that sense of contraction. That's part of what's happening there. So there's uh, a lot of possibilities that can be very creative, can use your imagination a lot. Um, and it does open up uh, a lot of possibilities that are, you know, tantric or quasi-tantric or, or Vajrayana-like, etc. <clears throat> but there is also, of course, the possibility of imaginal practices here um, in this whole realm with with parents, as I mentioned at the beginning, and. Uh, 
you know, one possibility might be um, a little bit similar to the exchanging self and other. You know, that there's, there's a relationship because it uses the imagination. It also uses the self. So where there's um, an imaginal relationship with an object, pain, it will, in, it will start to involve the sense of self. And uh, the soul-making dynamic, the imagine will spread to include the sense of self. So we can actually deliberately include the sense of self um, from the beginning. I want to go into this a little bit. So for example, here's this pain, here's this dukkha, here's this illness, here's what, whatever it is. And one can have you know, some kind of image um, of it as a sacrifice, or oneself as a sacrifice, as a sacrificial victim, if you like. Um, now that may be, um, you know, a fully blown sort of image of a sacrifice and oneself in that or, or whatever. It could be much, much more subtle than that. Um, but in some way, the pain and the suffering and the self are woven into an image of sacrifice. So it might be a kind of very, uh, yeah, you know, detailed prominent image of one of, of being a sacrificial victim and uh, in relationship to the pain. Or it might be that the whole notion of sacrifice and sacrificial victim remains uh, kind of vague. It's not so filled out as an image. It's just a kind of a potent idea. So that rather than paying a lot of attention to an actual image, there's this thing going on where this you know, sacrificial victim is, I don't know, burnt on an altar or whatever it is, or, um, it's actually just the notion, the, 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 again, like a tincture, the idea of a sacrificial victim, for example, um, but it remains vague, um, it might be just a kind of archetypal idea, or it might be, and that's in the background, what's more in the pain is, is what, what's, excuse me, that's in the background. What's more in the foreground is 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 the pain, etc. And the the image, so to speak, is functioning more as an ideational image background, or a sense of a, a vague archetype, or it might be through um, uh, a very specific archetype. I mean, the obvious one is Christ, you know. And maybe there's an identification, for example, with Christ's passion, Christ on the cross, etc. And again, that could be that the image of Christ comes very much to the foreground, um, and the pain is still there, etc. But the image of Christ and the sense of identification comes more to the foreground. Or, the other, the other way, it's just in the background. It's the archetypal idea and sense and resonances and soul beauty of uh, the archetype of Christ and the identification with that that's uh, in the background, and what's in the foreground is myself, my particulars, this experience, um, but that has become imaginal, and partly it's, uh, the image of it is sustained by the background archetype. And again, we talked about this word sacrifice just the other day, very briefly, but um, the etymology here is to make sacred. Facere in Latin is to make sacred, to make something sacred. So, again, I'm not talking about like Hollywood, Hollywood um, meanings of the word, 
sacrifice where yeah there's you know strange rituals on on altars with blood and sort of weird stuff that we don't understand um it has to i mean it might it might be that but the question as always with soul making practices is it soul making what's what's needed here what degree of image what degree of image in the background uh, what kind of image it might be very very subtle might be kind of dramatic and gory, or it might be very, very subtle. But the question is, right now, what's soul making? So, uh, careful, you know, not to buy into a sort of yeah, gory Hollywood sort of incomprehensible, um, uh, you know, understanding of the word sacrifice. But in including the self in what's happening, um, and maybe this. Uh, imaginal notion or an image sense of sacrifice, sacrificial victim, um, then the whole thing can become um, imaginal. The element of the imaginal can ignite the divinity, the beauty, etc. And it starts to really include um, the person and my particulars, and maybe even the sense of um, the necessity of this suffering, the necessity of this sacrifice necessity of this dukkha to the divine. And I'll come back to that. So, actually, before yeah, before I come back to it, just to, just to say a few things about about all this. Uh, so, any uh, dharma practice in the sort of uh, any dharma practice should bring about a reduction of pain in the here and now, in the present. Uh, So even something like doing metta for other beings, uh, or compassion, or whatever it is, any dharma practice should bring about a reduction of pain. Even if that's not what one's aiming for, even if one isn't trying not to even pay much attention to the pain, or if one is, or if one can't help including it in the attention, but any Dharma practice should bring a reduction in pain to some degree. Why? Because any Dharma practice, all Dharma practices, even practices like metta or whatever, are effectively reductions in the moment of clinging. So reducing clinging, again, there's a reduction of fabrication, the reduction of fabrication, also the pain gets fabricated less, the unpleasant Vedana gets fabricated less. So any Dharma practice should bring a reduction in pain right now. Not because I'm distracting myself because I'm paying attention to my metaphrases or whatever. Um, so it brings a reduc- should bring it some degree of reduction in pain, even if it's just a little bit, in the here and now. Not because of one's distracting oneself through practice, through trying to do some practice, but actually because there's less clinging. Right? That's the understanding of dependent arising. But... More importantly, I think, um, again, what's the point here? What's the point? So, the Buddha, you know, some people say, well, the Buddha talked. Well, the Buddha talked about, you know, meditation, particularly jhana, but actually all meditation, as pleasant abiding in the here and now, and that being one of the reasons to practice meditation. That one's actually being able to, to abide, to be, to, 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 to dwell 
in a pleasant state in the here and now. Pleasant abiding in the here and now is one of the reasons for um, meditation, for developing meditation. But the other reason uh, the Buddha gave, of course, is, is for the development of insight and the ending of the fetters, um, the ending of the effluence, liberation, nibbana. So that, obviously, we regard meditation as um, a a process uh, leading, you know, developing that insight so that there is at some point liberation. This first reason that he gave, pleasant abiding in the here and now, is often not so much emphasized in, in contemporary teachings, but it's a reason he gave, this is why we practice meditation, for a pleasant abiding in the here and now. In other words, can I abide pain-free? But also to develop insight. And that second reason, the development of insight, is actually the main point or rather, it has a it ha, it's it's more important than pleasant abiding in the here and now. Sometimes people said, "Well, uh, you know, this can't be right." What you said about fabrication and all that business about emptiness and uh, pain disappearing and not being and fading and not being fabricated, because the Buddha suffered from back pain. So you're telling me that. Um, it's possible of not fabricating physical pain, but the Buddha, if the Buddha had back pain, then what? So, But there's suttas where the Buddha says he can be without his back pain as an old man um, when he enters certain states of meditation, very deep unfabricating. And then the, the pain disappears, it unfabricates, it's unfabricated. When he moves about the world, I said right at the beginning, when he moves about the, around the world, um, in the world, and he's interacting, and it's outside of that degree of sort of meditative uh, art, and uh, deliberate meditative art and attention, the pain was experienced again. It was refabricated again. What's more important here, uh, though, is that the, the, you know, the point of these teachings, the main point of these teachings about fabricating and, and emptiness and un- learning to unfabricate, is not, or at least what's... Uh, it's not to live free of pain. To, to live a life that just isn't touched by pain because one has learnt these tricks so that one never has to experience pain anymore. This pleasant abiding is a secondary level of, of you know, reason. It's, 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 it's important. It's a relief. We need to have some relief. We need to have that release from dukkha if, as much as is you know, possible for us. But the primary reason is not to live free of pain. Rather, it's that in the seeing the dependent unfabricating and therefore the emptiness of pain, there's a much more general sense uh, and profound sense of freedom freedom in, in relation to existence that emerges for a human being. I see, because I see uh, the emptiness of things, not just pain, the emptiness of everything, um, a, a much broader, deeper, and more general sense of freedom in relation to the whole of existence emerges. That's more important. The insight is more important, and that that sense of existence changes, and the sense this sense of the emptiness of, of all things, and that has a bearing on my whole life. It influences my relationship with the whole of my life. Painful, the pleasant, uh, birth, death. 
how long my life is, how short my life is. How I feel about all that depends uh, on, on, on this, this level of insight. It changes this level of insight into emptiness. Uh, changes my whole sense of things. But I would say, even that is kind of even more important, more primary than that, is is um, is not just this change sense of freedom, of liberation in relationship to the whole of my life and my death. Even more important, and I'd say even more primary, is is that that seeing of the emptiness uh, of things deepens and opens a sense of the sacredness and mystery of all things as well. A really deep emptiness, as we talked about the other day. And actually I talked about it on the jhana retreat as well. It opens, and a little bit in, in, uh, today in this talk, opens up and deepens a sense of sacredness. And to me that's, if you like, the most primary point. Second is is this profound and widespread sense of liberation in relation to my whole life and, and death. And then third is the, uh, the you know, the very um, a gift we're very grateful for, the possibility of pleasant abiding in the here and now, relief from pain. But to me they have a hierarchy there, which I think I mentioned also in one of those emptiness seminars in response to a question. So, but also in soul-making practice, um, that again translates as, you know, some of these uh, soul-making practices, and I'll describe one in a minute, um, or, or like what I alluded to with the kind of playing with the idea of sacrifice, they will uh, attenuate, they will reduce the sense of unpleasantness, the amount of pain, the intensity of pain in the moment. But still, that's not the point. Soul-making is the point when we're doing soul-making practice. So all this, of course, is related uh, in Dharma. What I said about that, uh, to what I said about that, that middle middle space of, of sort of half fading, that region of the spectrum of fabrication, spectrum of fading. It's also related to the exchanging self and other. There's in those practices there is um, a sacredness, a beauty, a divinity that we open up to. But then when we come to soul-making practice, you know, soul-making is the point of soul-making practices. It's the primary point. And yes, secondarily, we can often experience, uh, you know, dissolving of suffering, relief from suffering, relief from dukkha. But the primary point of soul-making practice is soul-making. I remember recently I heard, of, um, I heard uh, that old gospel song, Oh, happy days. And I realized listening to it, I hadn't heard it for yonks and yonks and yonks, and I, I realized listening to it that I had been for many years, um, had, I didn't really know the lyrics. And I had thought that, um, vaguely in the back of my mind, that the lyrics uh, were not, uh, the actual lyrics are, Oh, happy days when Jesus washed my sins away. Um, and obviously the version I must have heard, you know, yonks ago, was, oh, happy days when Jesus walked. And then I couldn't really hear what the rest of it says. So not washed, but walked. And so the song was kind of, um, 
in existing in my mind with the wrong lyrics, but I much preferred the old version. Not, oh, happy days when Jesus washed my sins away, but just, oh, happy days when Jesus walked. That touched me and touched my soul much more. Um, in other words, there was an image wrapped up in just of Jesus walking, maybe with some of his disciples. And, um, and the image was not uh, Jesus Christ, you know, with trumpets blaring and triumphant glory and little pink fat cherubs, you know, floating around and, you know, gallons of white light gushing down from the heavens. It wasn't that. It was It was sort of not even that distinct as an image, but it was in a way very ordinary looking. Just Jesus as a, you know, this young man walking, perhaps loosely some of his disciples and other people around just walking. That was it. But captured in that image of Jesus walking um, was all stuff that I can't put into words. Just Jesus, his mercy, the mystery, the, the beauty, the, the, the divinity, the humility, the tenderness, the love, the compassion. So, if I think, when Jesus washed my sins away, it's almost like, oh, happy days. Happy because my sins are washed away. And there's, there's a release, uh, you know, it's, it's something for the self's process. The image that I had with my wrong lyrics was just Jesus walking. There was kind of nothing for the self's process in there. It was just the imaginal beauty of that. And as I said, it was even it was even like a really, really subtle, vague image, but moved me so much more than something that would be, because I'm happy because he washed my sins away, so that, whatever, so I go to heaven, or I feel I feel pure, or whatever. The gift and the, the grace of, in the image there, is not in washing my sins away, is not in being saved, amazing grace, etc., save a poor wretch like me, the gift and the grace, in, in this sense, was more, much more uh, mysteriously and subtly, and all the more powerfully for just how uh, mysteriously and subtly and quietly it was woven in, just to the image of Jesus, in that in in that sort of very earthy, humble, um, but but uh, divine way, with all all that sort of beauty there. So you know what's important. What's important um, in our Dharma practice? Of course, you have to decide that, what's important for you. And I'm just sharing, for me, if I put these things in a hierarchy, even in deep emptiness understanding, the most important thing is the sacredness. It all comes. The freedom comes. The pleasant abiding comes, of course. But if I had to put them in a hierarchy of what the point of all this is, I would put the sacredness on the top, even above the freedom. And in soul-making practice, uh, it's it's the sacredness too, and and the soul making, basically. <laughs> so, um, just to fill out a little bit of an example of um, from myself a few months ago, <laughs> I've been in uh, quite a lot of pain for the last few months uh, in uh, different ways. <laughs> from, I guess from the cancer, and um, so was meditating, and, and was in quite a lot of pain, 
And I just want to describe one possibility, just to get a little bit of a sense, and hopefully it amplifies and illustrates um, in a helpful way. So first we're sitting in the meditation. Lots of lots of possibilities. Could have done all those emptiness things or the jhanic thing, whatever. But at that point, was more inclining towards seeing what was possible in terms of soul making practice, in terms of sensing the soul. So that very intention invites and demands a certain what we call what we might call the poise of soul making, which means I need to be there with uh, my energy body awareness. I need to be there with that open and uh, filled with that kind of sensitivity. I need to be there also with a kind of receptivity and opportunism even around the sense of soulfulness. So that's part of the soul-making poise. Just Part of that is also confidence, that it's possible that something here can be um, sensed with soul. Soul-making is possible in relationship to this dukkha. So there's energy, body awareness, this receptivity to the sense uh, of soulfulness, this kind of little bit of opportunism, also dependent on a kind of quiet background confidence, which is partly based on experience, or it might need to be, it might need to just inject a little bit of trust. There's also humility in the poise. So here's yes, a very challenging situation, dying of cancer, um, pain coming in, often baffling ways and quite intense ways for long periods of time. Um, Humility in relation to that situation, but also humility in relation to soul. Um, So that's part of what we might call the poise of soul-making, the sort of space in which uh, soul-making, the possibilities of soul-making are supported or primed. We're ready for that. Um, Also, the knowledge that... Um, image or sensing the soul is a way of looking. It's something that I need to uh, engage. I can't. I'm not going to just be given it. I need to. Um, I need to make sure that I uh, take care of the elements, take care of looking in in certain ways, the way of looking, etc. Um, part of the poise also might be the soul making poise. I'm just slightly less fabricating. So that's one of the elements of the imaginal. So just just slightly less fabricating. Um, and also the fullness of intention. The intention is the soul-making. Not just relief of dukkha, not just whatever else it might be. And also, um, within this, what we might call poise, or what I've called at other times the kind of crucible, um, I need to... Uh, feel both the painful, difficult, or uncomfortable sensations. So I can't kind of draw away from them. They're inclu- they have to be included. I need to feel them and feel the dukkha of that. I need also to feel um, the emotions um, initially as emotions. I need to, there needs to be some pathos there, some uh, a, a, as dukkha. You know, There's the emotions that go with this pain that uh, I didn't understand how it, you know, what could help it, even physically I was, you know, trying to stretch, or is it my back, or is it this, um, or that, and there's a lot of confusion and a lot of work and time and energy going into trying to figure it out. Um, so there's, there's all kinds of emotional uh, 
strands and aspects within a kind of heart pathos. So there's the physical dukkha, and then there's the emotions. And at first I need to actually feel those emotions as emotions. Um, uh, Feel the dukkha there, and um, some compassion for it. Compassion in the mix. Some amount of, really really it was just spontaneous compassion that was there. This is all part of what I'm calling the... um, the, the poise of soul-making, or, or what makes the, the, the vessel, the space, ready for soul-making, part of what I'm calling, what I have called in the past, the crucible. In other words, included in it is, uh, we are, or rather, we are deliberately including, I was deliberately including the emotions. They weren't super strong at that time, but even if they were, if they were super strong, that would be need to be what's included. Um, just... There, there's dukkha here, there's a kind of grief here, etc. So it's including the emotions and um, a kind of softness in holding them. So this is also part of the art, part of kind of weaving that crucible or, or, or forming that crucible. So I'm not relating to the emotions in a way that they're just kind of becoming just sensations. Nor am I relating to them and to the dukkha there, emotional and physical, as uh, without story. So when I talked about the um, the mindfulness approach, I'm sort of relinquishing story, putting it aside, dropping story. Here, I'm not relating to it without story. So I'm actually including the story, the story of my life, the narrative of my life, the sense of myself um, in time. So th- this that that's all part of the ingredients, um, and so including the story also means including time. So I'm not just focusing on just this moment, just this now, of these sensations. Yeah. And and the time awareness, as I'll describe as I go into uh, explaining what happened, and the time awareness actually is quite then multi-leveled and complex. Uh, because the time awareness included, as things opened up, it included the flow of time. It included this moment's experience of whatever was happening in this moment with the with the pain, etc. But it also included what I've described several times before as a sense of my whole life, as uh, a subspecia eternatis, from the perspective of eternity, from the perspective of after death. And the narrative of my life, almost like the whole narrative story of my life, viewed from, so to speak, beyond time or after death. The whole narrative of my life, seen from that perspective, of it, like it's an eternal sort of snapshot, but it's got the whole narrative in it. So that the time awareness involved, or that came, actually included all of that. Includes the story, includes the sense, or the really the image of my life, of my whole life. So my whole life, when it when it's looked at as in that kind of subspecia eternatis, that eternality, that perspective from beyond death, it's already kind of well on its way to becoming image, fully imaginal image. So including everything that I've just said in 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 the poise of soul making, including the self and the sense or image of my whole life especially in the face of death, so knowing uh, I have a terminal diagnosis, knowing I'm dying. Um, 
And this sense of self and and uh, the sense of my health is kind of circumscribed by the um, sort of before life, before birth, and after death times or periods. So somehow in the time awareness, there's both uh, there's all kinds of different senses and levels of time we're talking we're talking about. And this I may come back to this, but this relates to what I was talking about in yesterday's talk about. Uh, the emptiness of time and what that might open up for us in terms of healing. I hope to come back to that in a second. But what came, so all these ingredients there, and then what came was a kind of sense of a ritualistic kind of giving back of the moments of physical dukkha, the physical challenges and illnesses throughout my life, and I've had uh, long years of chronic illnesses, uh, a kind of ritualistic giving back of all those moments of physical dukkha, physical challenges, physical illnesses, to the divine, to the gods, to the angels. They, These gods, god, divine, divinities, angels, they were not vividly seen at that moment. So we're not talking... Uh, about that kind of image where the, the, the sense of them was there. It was clearly felt. It was palpable. So they were very much a part of of uh, the image. Their presence was felt. But they were not vividly seen in, in the imagination. But there was this ritualistic giving back of these moments of physical dukkha and all the illness, etc., the physical illness, moments of illness. And the sense of those sensations over a life as holy gift, sacred gift, which I was asked and agreed to bear. This was the imaginal sense that just came. So all the soul-making poise and possibilities were there, and there was the receptivity and the attentiveness and a certain sense of one's whole life, subspecia eternatis. Somehow wrapped up this ritualistic giving back of what I was given as sacred gift, as holy gift, which I was asked and somehow agreed to bear. It was a grace given to me. Someone had to carry this for some reason I didn't understand. I didn't know. And now there was the in the meditation, there was the handing them back with reverence. Of course, that handing back also was echoed a little bit with the sense of, you know, dying soon, etc. But in the meditation, handing them back with reverence and with care in this kind of ritualized, sacramental way. As if you would, uh, the image was as if of, of passing back a ritual object in a ceremony. And again, this wasn't visually clear in terms of detail but uh, distinct clear visual details you know other images are this wasn't but it was the the imagistic sense the imaginal sense of the whole thing it's part idea part sense of uh, it's not just the moment but actually the whole of life and the whole kind of transaction of life And this um, touched my heart deeply, and, and the heart became very tender with it all. Peace came, 
and and actually then then pleasure in the body, where there was pain, actually pleasure spread. I said that's not the point, but there was this attenuation of the uh, unpleasant vedana, and pleasant vedana came. To some degree, the reduction of the uh, discomfort in the here and now. But all the elements of the imaginal were there, and this sense of grace and beauty and all the rest of it. And then the painful sensations were also there. It was almost like they were still there as well as the pleasant in this kind of like curious, uh, mystically, uh, mystically coloured, mystically flavoured mix of sensations, the painful and the pleasant. And the painful sensations became kind of like ethereal jewels floating in space, radiant jewels floating in space. And the heart bowed to all of that. And the weariness of chronic illness for some of you who had chronic illness, you know just how tiring it can be for the psyche to have to deal with that, you know, day in, day out, month in, month out, year in, year out. Acute illnesses are very dramatic, and, you know, both for the person going through it, but also for people who love them or people around them. It stimulates a lot of interest and compassion, etc. And there's a way in which chronic illnesses, they might be less intense sometimes, but they're asking something different of the psyche to bear over a long time. And it can be wearying. And the weariness of the chronic illness was um, redeemed and given dimensionality and this divinity and eternality and meaningfulness and duty and purpose. But duty and purpose that the the kind of the rational mind did not could not understand i don't understand what's my duty what's the purpose of this but it feels like it has a duty a purpose to it it feels uh, like there's some meaning to it wrapped up in the meaningfulness but i cannot say what it is i cannot understand with my logical mind what it is what it could be beauty, love, lightness, the melting of the heart. Um, I mentioned this uh, founder of Neoplatonism, uh, Plotinus, the other day. And um, in the last years of his life, he had developed some kind of illness. And it's not really clear to us now what that illness was, but at any rate, he was um, abandoned by all his students um, because they feared uh, that they would catch his illness, they feared uh, that his illness was contagious. So, I think for the last two or more years of his life, he, he basically lived in a kind of solitary exile. Um, and there was one of his students, uh, who was also a doctor, who who stayed with him through that period, whose name I've forgotten now. Um, but he was abandoned by the rest of his students, and he lay dying. And as he lay dying, um, the doctor 
was with him, tending to him, just being with him as he as he died. And after he died, the doctor wrote down his last words. Unfortunately, uh, this doctor, um, uh, which seems to be the case for doctors nowadays as well, had not very good handwriting. So it's it's a little bit unclear exactly, uh, but it's it was one of two things that he said. Either it was a description uh, of what he was doing as he was dying, and he said, excuse me, I'm trying to bring back or trying to give back the divine in myself to the divine in the universe. Or, he said, as an instruction, give back the divine in yourself to the divine in the universe. And those were his last words. Give back the divine in yourself to the divine in the universe. And so this reminded me a little bit of that. So again, we could say, oh, just awareness is divine in terms of it's the same substance, the same divine nature of mind in everyone. But that's all just like water everywhere. It's all water. There's no difference between my awareness and your awareness and the next person's awareness. It's all just the divine substance of awareness. Once you mix it back into divinity, it's all just the same, like mixing water in water. There's another uh, kind of sacredness and kind of divinity uh, and kind of sanctification of our personhood that we're very much interested in is as human, human being, as human beings in in soul making practice, and that's that's more inclusive of our particulars and our particular narrative and our particular dukkha and the necessity, as I mentioned earlier, the necessity of our particularities and our personality and our dukkha to the divine. So in this sense, it was <clears throat> in this image of this kind of uh, ritualistic giving back of these moments of physical dukkha, these physical challenges to the divine, to the angels, to the gods, whose presence I felt but didn't really see vividly. And the sense of these sensations over a life being given to me as a grace, as a sacred gift, because someone had to carry this for some reason I didn't understand, something I was asked to do and agreed to do. All of this, uh, neither real nor not real, all of it theatre, understood that way because it's image. But in that way, the divine in me being given back was something very personal. It wasn't just my awareness, let's say. being the same nature as everyone's awareness, universal awareness. So this, uh, perhaps just as an illustration, one, one possibility. And I said, um, mentioned very briefly, we talked about time the other day and the you know, different views of time um, as different conventional views of time one's adopting and what they open or close. And mentioned that idea of the Neoplatonic idea, of the soul engendering time. Because it wants to know uh, the divine attributes or the level of angels, or what was called intelligences or ideas or forms, 
It wants to know them, and, and they are eternal and timeless, and it can't grasp them, it can't know them all at once. So it uh, engenders time, soul engenders time, so that it can know them all. But they have to be one after the other, in sequence, in temporal sequence. So we mentioned that the other day. And because the self is always more than one thing, or more than one way of looking at it, more than one narrative, or more even than one soul narrative, because we, are, uh, we have many angels, not just one angel, out ahead. So you could say the soul uh, engenders time to know that particular uh, angel. Where there is this um, eternity of uh, contract of being given as grace, as gift, a sacred gift, this, uh, this, this pain. And then that's played out uh, or stretched out over time, over 50-something years between birth and death. Because I also need to have times within that, other times where I know other senses of self, other angels. Not just that one, I'm more than that. There's more to my soul than one story, one narrative, one angel. There are more angels to my soul than one. So it's just an illustration. There's a, uh, I don't know if we can make a summary, but there's a lot about the poise, the soul-making poise, if that's our intention for soul-making with a certain dukkha, with a certain physical pain. There were a lot of elements, a lot of aspects to that that I ran through. And then potentially this um, including the self, and including the, this kind of beyond death, this subspecies eternatus view of one's whole life, one's whole narrative. So time and timeless get woven in. The, 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 the way of being with the dukkha and the emotions and the story that don't cut them out but also don't squeeze them or look at them in a way where they just become sensations. So after all this is part of the, the crucible. And then an image, or isn't it? There's one, one possible illustration. As I was reflecting on that a little later, I also wondered then, in that image sense of receiving these pains, these discomforts, these health difficulties, um, long, you know, uh, chronic health difficulties, in the image sense of receiving all that from the divine, from beyond or before life as part of my image, the image of me, the angel of me, uh, the image of it as my duty to carry out, uh, sorry, to carry, my duty to carry this for some reason, to manifest, to, to express it, and the image then of giving them back ritually, reverentially. And again, none of that reified, neither real nor not real, imaginal middle way, theatre-like quality. And reflecting on all that, I reflected on a couple of things um, about ritual, actually. And I have to tell another little story here. 
there was a period after about a year, no, after about, I'm, you're supposed to get for the cancer I had, typical, typical uh, or standard treatment is six months of chemotherapy. And I persuaded the doctor, because I knew it was stage four cancer and I knew what that you know, the prognosis was very poor. I persuaded the doctor if he would just continue giving me chemotherapy after the six months. And reluctantly, he agreed. But after two more months, I actually developed an infection, what's called a, a, a sepsis, which is very dangerous, as some of you will know, when you're on chemotherapy, because chemotherapy um, depletes your immune system. So you have this infection which could rapidly s- spread and just kill you because you don't have an immune system up and running strongly. Um, because the chemotherapy has knocked out your immune system. So after about eight months of chemo, I ended up in hospital with this sepsis, and the doctor was uh, really quite concerned, and he said, absolutely no more chemo, etc. And um, uh, so he he said, no, no more chemo, and I had to take a break, and I took a break, and... Um, he didn't want to give me any more after that, I understand. He was very, very concerned. I, it's a long story, I won't go into parts of it. But I found another doctor who was willing me to give me more chemo, and he, on the other hand, was more anxious. You better start it soon, because if you wait too long, then the cancer's just going to come back. But in that time that I wasn't on chemo, my body also started to recover from the chemo, from the effects of the chemo, which is really... Uh, quite toxic and depleting and damaging on all kinds of organs and systems in the body. So I was beginning just to feel a little more human and a little a little better. And it had been, as I've shared in other talks, really quite a lot of dukkha going through the, the chemo, not just because of its effects on my body and my energy and make me feel sick and diarrhea and all the rest of it. Um, but also, I've shared elsewhere, just how difficult it was to, to go into that chemo ward and the soulness of it. I've shared this elsewhere, I'm not going to go into it now. So in this period where I had been now, I think, almost three months uh, without chemo, two months, or getting on for three months, and some people, this doctor and some other people, were really anxious for me to start chemo again, and I could really feel a part of me that was really... Oof, I really don't know if I can. I, it was really, really hard to envisage putting myself back in that soulless chemo ward and putting my body through that. Primarily it was a soullessness. But, um, and then I remember um, working with Catherine one night and we were working together on soul-making stuff and I asked, could we do a, could we do a ritual? Because I had uh, I decided I would go back to chemo, but it was a big deal. It felt like a big deal and a big ask of myself. And so we did a ritual um, one night, which I sort of devised, and I can't remember exactly now, but we had a little crucible, and I cut some of my um, nails from my fingers, my fingernails in there, and a bit of my hair, and a bit of facial hair, and a bit of dead skin I peeled off and put it in there, and a bit of saliva, I think I put in, and um, uh, some body hair. I can't remember eyelashes or just hair from my arm or something. Uh, different body parts, as you know, the, the Buddha kind of um, 
enumerates them in the, in the Satipatthana Sutta. Um, and just put these in the crucible, and then, I don't remember the details, and uh, offered this crucible, uh, these, offered my body up to, um, you know, in, in anticipation and in ritual preparation for re-entering chemo, uh, relating, trying to relate to it soulfully, um, in a soul-making way, in relation to the, the challenge and the dukkha of that, the coming challenge and dukkha of that, and uh, sort of burnt, burnt uh, those body elements, parts of the body, and I can't. There were there were other aspects. I can't. I can't remember sort of choreographing the the ritual. I don't remember. I remember that it included some aspect for my mind and perceptions because it was actually that was what was quite difficult as well. As I said, in the chemo ward and the soullessness and the plastic and the atmosphere in there and what people talked about and what people didn't talk about. I've shared this elsewhere. Anyway, the point is we had we we made a ritual and Catherine uh, and I did that and. Um, It was it was very beautiful and really helped helped me um, take that next step and re enter chemo. But one of the things I was wondering about, and then after this uh, kind of image of a ritual um, that I was just describing before, in the sensing the pain with soul, was this question that I've had, and I think I've put it out other times. But the question I have is, when does the materialization in ritual actually increase and support the soul making and when does it decrease the kind of soul power and the soul making to me this is a really really important question because in the meditation I described uh, a little while ago in this talk um, it was an image of a ritual and there was no action. I was just sat uh, cross-legged, etc., in meditation postures, meditating. There was no materialization of anything. In the sort of pre, pre-chemo ritual in, uh, uh, with Catherine, um, there was the materialization. So when is a materialization, um, it, when does that enhance the soul-making and the power and the soul power, and when does it decrease it, and why, why? So I think that's a really, really interesting question, and it parallels questions, for instance, like, when described like, oh, you can get a sense in meditation of your energy body um, moving in certain ways, or dancing in certain ways, or, or whatever, or vocalizing in certain ways, um, or roaring, or whatever it is. When does it help that that's actually materialized, concretized, acted on? And when actually does it disempower it to do so, when it actually has much more soul power, much more soul-making power, when uh, there's no materialization, concretization, actualization in physical reality of, uh, on the physical plane of that uh, image of what's happening in the energy body, or the energy body wants to do. I think this is a really, really important question, and that we need to be open to both, and able to do both, and able to do both artfully. But when um, is this one going to be uh, more helpful than that one, more soul-making, and why? 
you know, some going back to Neoplatonism, I think Plotinus held that um, action is always inferior to contemplation. But I would disagree. You know, we do include rituals on our soul-making retreats, and we have included um, movement, and uh, hopefully we'll include vocalization and, and other things at different times. But still there's this question, when, when, when to act and materialize, when to not, and why, why does it help sometimes and not others? And other times the reverse is true. So that's one question. It's an ongoing question. I think it's a really different, uh, really uh, interesting question. But a second thing I was wondering about following that meditation experience I, I uh, described, it's an illustration of possibility for working with pain. I started to wonder whether giving is always a necessary ingredient of soulful ritual. Is giving always a necessary ingredient of soulful ritual? So I started to wonder, you know, about the Eucharist, for example, the Catholic Mass. Um, So there was, you know, in that image, there was receiving, and then there there was the sense of being given something, and receiving something, and the sense of reverentially giving it back. And all of it was uh, kind of ritualistically receiving and being given, and then ritualistically giving it back. With all of it, with with a lovely sense of reverence and and beauty. But I wondered what that, that, does that, does that is that always a necessary ingredient for ritual, or one of the more empowering uh, one of the ingredients that's more empowering for ritual. Um, so I still don't know the answer, actually, but it's something I'm just sharing a, an ongoing question with you. It is interesting. I got interested in it and started to look up um, the word Eucharist and the etymology. And Eucharist actually means thankfulness, thanks. So it implies a gift. And, of course, there's the gift of the body and blood of Christ um, that that one receives in, in, in the Catholic Eucharist. Um, but there's also, uh, so there's the gift to us of the body and blood of Christ. There's also the gift of his peace, of Christ's peace, when he says, my peace I give unto you. Beautiful. So there's the gift of that kind of dimensional, divine, sacred peace, and all that can be pregnant with the, 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 the dimensionality of what that can mean, Christ's peace given to us, my peace I give to you. But there's also in in the Eucharist, um, as far as I understand it, I didn't grow up Catholic, um, there's a gift from uh, the congregation to each other, that they give that peace to each other. They give the peace they've received from Christ to each other. So there's giving and receiving. This is part of uh, what I was wondering, um, and there is that in different ways, and maybe more in in the Eucharist that I'm unaware of. Um, is also interesting. Um, another word for Eucharist in the, uh, or another word for that similar kind of ceremony, at least in other Catholic uh, denominations and traditions, is communion, Holy Communion. Communion is something like um, union with God. Um, not so much oneness or union, but being t- 
together. Uh, so there's um, communion with God or communion with the church, with the body of Christ. The body of Christ also means the church. And so there's a giving of oneself in communion. Another word for Eucharist is Mass. And Mass is from uh, the Latin Misa, uh, which is from the verb mitere. Uh, and mitere is to send away. So we have, in English, we have dismiss. And we also have words like missive or mission. We're sent on a mission, or a missive is something we send. Um, so uh, they, there's a dismissal at the end of the Mass, and that's where it gets its name. Um, you're sent away. Uh, with the priest's blessing and with having received the holy, holy sacrament, um, and so we become, in that sense, perhaps one interpretation is that we who have received um, what has been given to us in ritual, this gift from God, we then go out as gifts uh, from God to the world, to others, and to the world. So we're giving ourselves, we're passing on that gift. We are the gift that's passed on. So, I don't know, but um, it's an ongoing question, and since ritual, I think, is very much a part of soul-making practice, and uh, I'm very interested in it, and what's involved, and what's important, and developing that, we don't have set, prescribed, formulaic rituals, we haven't so far, Uh, we've kept them always very, um, they're always, in fact, created um, there and then on the retreats when we've done them. Um, sometimes they have spontaneous elements in them. Um, so we don't have one one ritual or even several rituals that we repeat so far. So far I, I like it that way, but I'm open. But I'm very interested in this, so I was partly wondering that. I don't know the answers. Is uh, receiving and giving a necessary part of ritual, or is it uh, an ingredient, a possible ingredient of ritual that can be very empowering? Last thing, um, and in a way connected to what I just said, is, um, so I am actually open to the idea of having, developing, you know, set ritual formulae that then get, get repeated, so I'm certainly not close to that idea. Um, but I do think there's something for this uh, capacity to create and discover rituals that are new um, for the soul-making. Um, but connected to that, so uh, also so I describe that practice, that imaginal practice, that sensing the pain with soul. Um, but I really want to communicate, uh, in a way what I really wanted to communicate is illustrate a possibility and get a general sense of what may need to be involved. Some or all of what I point, pointed to in terms of the, the poise, um, etc. Um, I think what I really want to say is please don't assume um, that imaginal practice is, is formulaic, that there's a formula. Sometimes it might seem that way, um, but for me it really needs to, I think for its full flourishing and its the fullness of its possibilities, um, it needs to retain a sense of um, improvisation and op- op- opportunism 
and openness and flexibility. Some of those earlier practices I described uh, with insight ways of looking or whatever, we could say they're, they're more or less formulaic. Actually, even then, there's lots of improvisatory possibilities and variations. But I think when we come to imaginal practice and the art of that, that art, um, careful of getting into a sort of formulaic way of thinking. First I do this and one, two, three, like that. Um, it's so often the case if I'm working with someone uh, in an interview that I I have an intuitive sense at some point. It just comes that this or that needs to happen, X or Y needs to happen, um, and um, or something needs to be put in relationship with this image or whatever. But that X or Y needs to happen or whatever it is is, is often not something I've actually thought of before or mentioned in talks or systemized, um, systematized in the teachings. So to me, there's there's really part of the beauty comes in the in the improvised, open, attentive nature of uh, the the way we approach the practice with this flexibility. And there's there's grace there because when it just one gets an intuitive sense, oh, this needs to happen, or this needs to get emphasized, or I need to put this uh, image in relationship with this other thing, another image or another, a particular dukkha or whatever it is. Um, and they're not things that one has thought of before, formulated. Um, then that's part of the grace. That's part of the create, that's the discover of the create discover. That's part of the humility in relation to soul as well. So yes, we certainly can um, talk about what goes in to making a crucible for soul-making work with Dukkha. We can talk about the elements of the imaginal. We can talk about, what did I call it today, the poise of soul-making, of readiness for soul-making. We can talk about what goes on in there, but there's not necessarily a certain order. And and there might be other uh, you know, things that get left out or things um, that occur to us, um, that are given to us as graces. So that the whole thing really becomes... Um, an art that's partly improvised and and not just stuff that I'm doing that's coming from my will. It's in relationship, so to speak, in relationship to soul, to angel, we are given. And part of what we're given is an intuition or intuitions about what might be included, what might need to happen, etc. So yes, of course, this this is part of the balance. There is a place for working, for my technique, for art, but there's also the place for um, grace and the other and soul and then the infinity of soul as other and the notion of uh, receiving from soul what we hadn't formalized, hadn't occurred to us, hadn't figured out. It's not a technical step. It's both. There's a balance. There's a, a straddling of those two uh, aspects or moments, directions. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.